we need as many people in this fight as we can possibly get. And like we talked about, I think showing these stories, these images, these videos is how we continue to engage the public on things they don't know about. Somebody living well downstream may not really understand what's happening in the upper watershed. Um, they may not understand what they can be doing. So I think if we engage everybody along the watershed in some way, shape or form, the more people fighting for it, the more of almost an army we have of advocates, the better off we're going to be. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast. This is the podcast where we interview some of the world's most interesting, knowledgeable and iconic explorers, athletes, scientists and experts from the world of outdoor adventure and how they live lives of purpose. Purpose meaning how they cultivate their relationship with their environment, the earth, how they cultivate the community with others and how they ultimately find inspiration and fulfillment in themselves. This is season two of the Rome from Home podcast, and we have some really exciting news. Adventure Activist has come on for this season to support us for the next 12 episodes with a very clear vision and a lineup that will be designed to promote action and ignite change for the better. And in particular, this season, we are with the founder of Adventure Activist, our co-host, Dr. Terry O'Connor. And with his help, we're going to be looking carefully at this concept of effective altruism and who is really doing the work that is leading to better outcomes in some of these causes. So we really want to provide you, dear listener, with the tools and resources to get out, get up off the couch, stand up and take a stance on social and environmental issues that are hindering our world from becoming a more just and beautiful place. Terry, He's a medical doctor and an ER doc. Terry was a climber and an adventurer, and that inspired him to get into medicine. And his work as an ER doc has inspired his work to be and to become the founder of Venture Activist, which is focused on the STD goals of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so with that, what's up, Terry? Hey, everybody. Terry here. Yeah, CJ. Uh you know, I think we've joined forces here because we believe that those who are privileged to expand their horizons as travelers and explorers really do bear intimate witness to the threats to our world and are really uniquely positioned and motivated to serve in return. So we really want this season to be an educational space uh, for our listeners, which presents the foundational knowledge and tools for making positive change and we want to share our network of subject matter experts in really diverse areas of expertise, including health, education, philanthropy, peace, justice, conservation, climate, and more. Oh, we're excited to have you, Terry, and to, to team up with Adventure Activists and you in particular. We were brought together by our mutual friend and board member at Adventure Activists, Rebecca Rush. Just amazing opportunity for us to really dive into some of this. And you and I are learning about this as we go. You're teaching me. Some of our guests are teaching us collectively. Uh, and in speaking of our other co-host, Corey Richards, who was my co-host throughout the entire first season, the first 24 episodes, he will also be joining us for a lot of these episodes. He's sort of in and out, depending on if he's in the Himalaya, if he's training, he has a busy life as a photographer, working photographer and athlete. And he brings an awesome perspective as someone who's also trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, you feel that in some of the episodes, Terry, you've noted that Corey's curiosity on this, I think is going to be really helpful for the audience. 
Oh, absolutely. He's had some great reflections uh, so far, but I really do enjoy learning from our guests and their process and figuring out how they want to best serve and give back uh, to the world. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious uh, who we got up next. So we've got two guys today on the podcast doing incredible work in the clean water and climate action space. Yeah, really excited. Uh, first off, Pete McBride is a photographer, writer, and Emmy-nominated filmmaker named a freshwater hero by the National Geographic Society. And his award-winning book, uh, Grand Canyon, Between River and Rim, documented his 650-mile hike along the canyon and highlighted growing development threats. Yeah, I think it's actually 750. So I'm sure Pete wouldn't appreciate the the 100 miles you just lopped off. I think his, <laughs> I think his feet, uh, no, 750. Yeah, but amazing, just a wild trip that he and his friend Kevin did. And of course, we've got Josh Jesperson on today. He's a climate activist, a guide, and president of the Veterans Outdoor Advocacy. He also started a, a um, nonprofit called uh, Mission Memorial Day with Memorial Day coming up, something to pay attention to. Um, and his upcoming film, The Animus Project, which Rome is proud to be a part of, explores a catastrophic toxic sludge dump into the Animus and how one small town took it upon itself to right that wrong. And that documentary is coming in mid-July. Yeah. So really both of our guests today are, are perfect examples of effective altruists, and they're here to share their journeys to activism and what we can learn from them. So with that, I think we'll, we'll kick it off. Which one of you wants to go first and introduce yourself? Pete. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Um, first off, thanks. Um, thanks, Chris, for organizing this. Thanks, everybody. Josh, great to meet you. Uh, I'll preamble by saying that my roommate in college, my now late roommate in college was a captain in the Marines. So my hat's off to you for your service. And I, I'm, it's an honor and humble to be on a show with you. Um, an introduction. Let's see. I'm a native Coloradan, basically grew up on skis in many of the peaks that you will talk about, I presume, um, in your skiing ventures. And I became a, I've been a photographer and a filmmaker, mostly for National Geographic, but a lot of other folks. For a long time, a couple decades, I was assigned a few years ago a story following a friend of mine down the length of the Colorado Road. He paddled the length of it, a guy named John Waterman. And when I got to the end, I was alarmed at what I saw. I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but it made me kind of refocus my lenses away from adventure and the high alpine and, and you know, expeditions from places like Everest to my more in my backyard and my backyard river, which has led other projects. Um, I most recently uh, walked the entire length of the Grand Canyon, which I thought might've been more like a walk in the park, but it was a little more than that, 750 miles. And now I just try to make people aware of, um, with my cameras and stories, um, how important, how lucky we are to have a pretty remarkable um, natural wild world around us and how we can try to protect it. Awesome. Uh, super stoked to meet you as well, Pete. And uh, thanks for that, um, that nod to service. I think whenever anybody says anything like that, I just mentioned that I did it so we can all be in the mountains, so we can all be outside. You know, that's, that's the reason. But before that, I grew up in Pennsylvania, actually, in the Appalachians and grew up a skier there too, believe it or not. Started skiing when I was three in the Pocono Mountains and then joined the service, spent six years in the military as a Navy SEAL and uh, deployed to two war zones. And the second one, I was in Afghanistan at Arfab at 6,000 feet completely snowed in and unable to ski all the snow around us and said to myself, I need to get back to skiing. <laughs> so got out of the military and moved to Colorado 
quickly got back into skiing and wanted to continue pushing out in the mountains and started loving and engaging the environment of the Rocky Mountains. And then kind of took that attitude of service that I had from the military into advocacy work, um, you know, due to my own immersion in these places and, you know, have gone on lots of projects and tried to tried to bring it in closer to home, like, like you kind of mentioned. Um, I think it's really important that we help people realize that, you know, it doesn't have to be this big global picture all the time. You can just be looking at your own backyard and start there and clean that up. But yeah, I'm really excited to have a conversation today. Great. Well, thanks for both joining us, uh, Josh and Pete. And you guys gave me a natural just kind of segue to what I wanted to get onto next, because you mentioned just advocacy here in your own backyard. And Pete, this is the first time we've met virtually, but I know Jake Norton and I've um, talked a bunch with David Morton and obviously their project with you on the Ganges in India, speaking of other rivers and on the Holy Unholy uh, movie project, which if those of you out there who haven't seen, it's worth a watch. And what's interesting to me is, you know, that's such a captivating story because it's quite, I think, uh, apparent to most people that being a very sacred river is also in many ways a lot of polluted and spoiled river. These We see a lot of images of pollution and a different sort of stewardship and use of that. But the reality is, is that just because we have parks in the United States and beautiful places, it doesn't mean that it's perfectly preserved, right? And for Josh, just because it's potentially in a remote wilderness environment uh, and a river in the high Colorado mountains, it doesn't necessarily mean it's pristine. And so I'm... I guess I'm just really curious, when did you start to kind of click that people weren't really recognizing what was happening in their own backyard? And, and you mentioned before that you needed to spin from this adventure in the high Himalaya to bring it closer to home. It, it's a good question. You know, I, I ask myself the same. And like Josh, I think um, there's something that triggers us. Maybe we have to go away from home. You have to leave before you realize what you have. And Perhaps that's part of it. But for me, when I did this source to sea down the Colorado River, which is interestingly, it's the same length as the Ganges River. They both travel 1,500 miles. They both are lifelines to each part of the world. I grew up on that river and I saw, I consider it my backyard river, not, not in an ownership way. I just feel like I know it like a friend and I know some of its quirks and flows and ups and downs and I've been on the top of its 14,000 foot peaks and skied up there and followed a lot of it. But I, I honestly, I didn't really know where the river went and I knew it went through seven states. I knew it went through the Grand Canyon. I knew it went through Lake Mead, but down kind of towards the end, I, I was a little murky and I I could look on a map and I could see that it went to Yuma, Arizona and then crossed over into Mexico. But I wasn't really clear what happened to this famous river. And so when I followed John, we, we came to the last dam on the river, the Morelos Dam, last of 100 dams. The, the delta from there, I'd heard about it from famous conservationists like Aldo Leopold being the river that was nowhere and everywhere and full of jaguars and cottonwood groves. And um, it stretched 3,000 square miles. And so from that last dam to the Gulf of California, um, it was roughly 100 miles that we were going to travel with pack rafts. And I, I'd heard it had been drying up and I was well aware of the water shortages, but the river died just a couple miles into Mexico, if that, in this sludgy, slurry pit of garbage and whatnot and plastic. And I was at that point just kind of horrified. I was like, what? How could we not know this? How could I not know this having grown up in the area? Um, I understand maybe an Easterner would know this, but how could I not know this? And how are we not talking about this? Why do we know more about pop stars than we do about our own water systems? And to you, Josh, maybe that, that triggered a little bit of service 
mentality. Maybe it came from my roommate in college who, who you know, he served the country and sadly perished doing so. Then maybe it's something about that. I, I felt an urge that I needed to really let people know that we're taking our natural systems uh, for granted, our most important ones. We can live without oil. We can't live without water. And we need to wake up. And maybe I could do something with a camera and a lens and stories. And it would probably be a, a, a drop in the bucket on many levels. We all have to get engaged on this front and be more aware. But I think that was the trigger point for me. And it is oddly enough, at that point, I, I kind of did a whole book and a bunch of films on the Colorado and thought I was done with it. And apparently the river wasn't done with me. So I ended up doing this big Grand Canyon project and about public lands and again about water. And and I think um, these backyard stories, like Josh said, you don't have to go away to get something engaging, interesting. In fact, we have some of the most remarkable history and landscape and stories right in front of our noses, oftentimes, and we don't realize it. I'd like to throw something out real quick on your last point there, Pete. I heard somebody say one time in an interview, to go on an expedition, what is that defined as? You know, And they kind of defined it as packing your bags and getting on a plane and going somewhere far. And to me, that was so backwards from how I see it. You know, instead, the way I see it is uh, you're engaging with something logistically, mentally, physically challenging with purpose and intention. It doesn't have to be around the world. You don't have to get on a plane to engage in an expedition. Instead, you have to have some intention on the back end, uh, some purpose with what it is you're doing, whether you're pushing human boundaries or gathering data to improve our world, our air, our land, our watersheds. And I think that definition kind of needs change in people's minds to help them, you know, get to where you are in your understanding and my understanding and, and help people utilize the photos and the stories that you tell, that I tell to help them become advocates in their own way. Great point. I agree. I, I think um, I've also heard people describe adventure as, you know, a, a poor plan with um, poorly packed gear. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> um, it can also be a def- definition too. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can have some of the greatest adventures, literally, if you're willing to open your mind to it around the corner and there's all sorts of opportunity there. And I think we'll get to this. The challenge now is how do we do that in a way that's respectful to these places? And we're not just adventuring for the sake of the purpose doesn't become ego, which you, you talk about a lot and social media and, and Instagram backdrops. How can we tweak that narrative, that paradigm that we're all falling into, which I think is sadly so ego driven and we're all easily fall victim to it, myself included at times um, uh, when, when everyone's suddenly a photographer and the, and the backdrops are kind of key to attention, uh, maybe false attention. But it's a funny spot. And um, I'm so glad you're out there doing it. And I'm, I mean, you've obviously seen the world and you've seen a, a big swath of humanity, probably the, the, the ugly side and the beautiful side to a degree, too. And um, to come back and dedicate, you know, to run back here to the water. And I, I just want to maybe it's a segue we can talk to is the whole concept of rivers, too, is interesting because we we just sort of take it for granted. We just expect them to be there to a degree. And and I did this project that Terry mentioned on the Ganges, and it's somewhat the opposite. They they pray to this river because they believe it to be holy. With that comes, they they love it to death um, on a number of levels. They maybe hug it to death, you could say. We don't, but then we don't, we don't realize that our water systems are like basically vanishing underneath us. 
at at the moment. And it's not just toxicity, it's overconsumption, it's overuse, it's overallocation. And it amazes me that I can look out in one of the tributaries from where I'm sitting right now of the Colorado, the Roaring Fork, and see it flowing and trickling. And then I can look down the street and see people running their sprinkler systems excessively in the middle of the day. And I'm just like, wow, how do we how do we get so disconnected? And um, we're we're on the cusp of perhaps what could be one of the greatest droughts, which I would argue we're well past drought into a stage of actual climate change seen in our watershed. Um, but we're on the cusp of that unfolding in front of our eyes this summer, this year, and wildfire will follow. And so it's, it's a tricky spot and we need need more more attention, more awareness, need more folks like you, because I'm getting old and sl- tired. you wouldn't know it pete if that's the case but uh and that's i I really like what you're both saying about you know purpose and i love that definition of expedition uh it's something that we're really trying to talk about here as far as how to move people from awareness and maybe there's not even the awareness that we need about this subject which hopefully we get into more but but also move into action and specifically Josh, you know, you, you have an upcoming film that you, you discovered some things and maybe talk about that a little bit. What was the purpose behind this project uh, that's upcoming and all those things that you both were just throwing out there sort of comes together when you have a creative project as Pete, as you've had so many, as you've just described, I remember seeing that film at mountain film and the horror of the terminus of the river being gone, just crazy. So maybe Josh, if if you can give us a little preview on that and how it came to be, I, th- I think that's a great example of of an expedition with purpose. Yeah, totally. And I think a nod to uh, Pete's film that he was just talking about, like you know, my film and others like it are certainly a continuation of perpetuating that message, right? Like many people took inspiration from your film, but over time, maybe that fades away and people's understanding of what they should be doing fades away. And sometimes it needs reinvigorated. Um, So this film that we're putting out, The Animus Project, has an intention of uh, helping people realize that they too live in a watershed and that they too can do something about it. What we did was we pack rafted out of Silverton down the Animus River uh, with skis. And the whole idea was that we wanted to pack raft and ski and go on a really rad adventure, but alongside with my kind of definition of expedition where we want to provide something, we have intention with it and purpose. We collected water samples all along the way to help us understand the spatial variability in the watershed and how the reclamation efforts that are being done in the upper animus watershed are affecting that river. The animus has been affected by the mining days of the San Juan Mountains, which, you know, produced a lot of uh, money and economy for the area and produced the towns and the roads that we now live and recreate in. But the long-term effects have become very prevalent around here um, as the river's orange. There was a, a blowout, mine blowout that happened a couple years ago that, that really exacerbated the problem and basically sent a slurry of orange liquid down the animus, killing an immense amount of fish and really devastating the river itself, which unfortunately is something that I'm not a stranger to. Where I grew up in Pennsylvania uh, is the coal region, the old coal region of Pennsylvania. I come from a coal mining family and all the creeks and streams around that area are orange from the old mining and all that stuff. And, you know, moving out West and seeing that same thing out here, I was like, got to do something about it. I I don't want this area to be 
the same kind of depressed economic zone that I grew up in, a place that needs its own reclamation efforts. And I hope somebody's working on that. But the idea of this project is to help perpetuate that idea that we can all do something. We can all participate in improving our watersheds and making them better. And unfortunately, this is not a short-term fight. It's a long-term fight. You know, that, that mine that blew out is one of hundreds, thousands of other mines that could potentially affect the watershed. So we need as many people in this fight as we can possibly get. And like we talked about, I think showing these stories, these images, these videos is how we continue to engage the public on things they don't know about. Somebody living well downstream may not really understand what's happening in the upper watershed. Um, They may not understand what they can be doing. So I think if we engage everybody along the watershed in some way, shape or form, the more people fighting for it, the more of almost an army we have of advocates, the better off we're going to be. I got a question. Yeah. Two questions. First question is, where did you put your skis having done a fair amount of pack rafting myself? They're not exactly (laughs) spacious. (laughs) Second question is, I saw a photograph when that happened of somebody pack rafting down the Animus in a Tyvek suit. Was that you? Uh, During the blowout? Yeah. Nope, that wasn't me. Nope. Um, But there's a lot of um, very disturbing photos from when that happened of just watching the orange slurry work its way in the distinct line of kind of clear, beautiful water. I wouldn't say pristine, but beautiful water. And then this orange line just moving down. (laughs) Google those photos, anyone listening. They're, They're kind of surreal. But also mounting the skis, we mounted them basically on the bow or the stern or just kind of on the gunnels. And, you know, it's kind of risky, right? Like, if anyone bumps boats, potentially it could pop the other boats. We only popped one, <laughs> which was kind of surprising. And that happened because um, the upper animus has a couple, you know, a lot of class fours, a couple class fives. And uh, I've been around water a lot in my life, but I would never call myself like a real experienced boater. And so I ran all the fives, but I swam a couple of them. (laughs) And so our kind of real experienced boater was at the bottom of it, getting ready to bump boats. And I swam. And as my boat was going down, he tried to bump it and get it over to the shore. And my skis popped his, his pack raft. (laughs) Luckily he fixed it with Tyvek. (laughs) Basically Pete's Pete's question was back to his original point. He was just fishing for an adventure story right there. Yeah, Sounds like like poor planning and packing to me. My definition of adventure. <laughs> <Play>. <laughs> Nailed it. Hey, Josh, I was curious, like actually with, with this project, I mean, was there something that particularly motivated you to put it together? I mean, so there's, you paint this picture literally in my mind, right? There's a very uh, uneasy aesthetic of the color going down the river, which I did see pictures of, which was very unsettling. But I'm curious if it might've been a a conversation with someone who's there in Silverton about how it impacted people's concerns about its effect on the biodiversity or even health effects that was particularly moving. Because oftentimes it's the people we talk to or the chance encounters we have that get this into these projects and having just getting started into this advocacy work, there must have been some sort of switch or trigger or candle lit moment for you there with this project. Yeah, kind of the muse of uh, this project. And I, I, I do want to rewind it just a little bit because the muse for advocacy for me um, in general is kind of the thing that like I always keep in mind um, when I continue to look for projects. It really happened when I was doing the 14ers around Colorado 
and I was on Mount Evans, uh, which, you know, has a road to the top of it in the summer and like a hundred people on the summit in the summer. And most people would think it's kind of a benign 14er, even though it has some amazing climbing and skiing on it. But during the winter, that road's closed, barely anyone skis it because it's mostly scoured and they don't think there's good snow there. So it's very desolate in the winter. It's very lonely and cold up there. And I had snuck in in this kind of 18 hour high pressure window between storms because I needed to let the mountain kind of load up with some snow to get a good ski line off the summit. And so walking in the whole time, it was completely rhymed up, bitter cold, wind blowing, this experience where I was like really struggling because to get there is many, many miles from a winter closure on Guanella Pass. And I popped around this corner on the summit ridge and there was a mountain goat standing there and it was just me and this mountain goat up here on this like heavily, um, just like wind loaded, uh, snowy, rhymed up, kind of summit ridge and nobody around for miles and miles and clouds all around too, because I'd snuck in in this low high pressure, like I said. And at that moment, I kind of like had this like realization of public lands that I'd never really had before. This like realization that there's all this land that we're so lucky to have access to in America. And I need to try my hardest to continue to protect that. I took it on in that moment as like an ideal of something that I fought for while I was in the military. And it just like really inspired me to then continue to take that forward and continue to be something that I want to fight for on and on. And that moment has like continued to inspire me in my advocacy work going forward. So like, I always kind of rewind back to that in my head, whenever anybody asks, like, what was the muse? It like always just pops right back to that moment because it's like the foundation of the, the work that I try to do. And then for the Animus in particularly, just kind of spending a lot of time in the San Juan, spending a lot of time around Silverton and just like seeing how much the locals here care, seeing how much this place is like the center of the snow and avalanche universe and has a, a deep background in mountain research. Um, mountain Studies Institute is here. Center for Snow and Avalanche Studies is here. Silverton Avalanche School is here. Colorado Avalanche Information Center has an office here. The work that has been done around this zone that revolves around snow and water is pretty immense for how small and isolated the town is. And I think just seeing that and like understanding that it's a place that very much needs um, continued protection and continued work around these mountains and the watershed. Uh, because the San Juan Mountains, the mountains of Colorado, the water towers of the West. And I think that idea, the water towers of the West, people really should latch on to and understand that if we don't protect these mountains, these water towers of the West, everything downstream will suffer in the long run. So it was kind of a long answer to that question. But, you know, I think um, people's roads to advocacy don't always just have like one moment, like one brief moment. If it is one big moment, kind of hang on to that and continue to build off of it. Awesome story. And uh, yeah. I think it's a, a good follow-up there. And you mentioned it, Pete, you know, that we're in this really historic moment in the West right now in terms of shortage and water shortage, shortage and drought, Lake Mead and Lake Powell at historic lows and, you know, a, a possible declaration officially, right, of, of water shortage, shortage. And so that... I think we understand again, there's uh, it, in terms of this conversation, awareness of the, of the problem. And so what can we do? What can the, what do, what do people need to do? 
you know, you just said it, Josh, like this, the importance of protecting the water towers of the West. What can we, we tell the audience here in terms of uh, getting out there and actually making an impact on the outcome if there are actionable items? It's the tough question and it's the question we all deal with and you can make, you can have, you know, do all you can on social media and make all the films in the world. We're not bumping the needle. What's the point? And I ask that myself a lot. And I, I talk to audiences a lot. The first and foremost is um, try to make people aware of it. And I think through like Josh's work and doing fun stories that aren't all about the end of the world, the end of our rivers that have humor, adventure, human components that show we're all part of the system. I think those stories are really helpful. So I, I try to find stories because I often talk to people that even today that they don't really care about the rivers. They think climate change is not for real. And in some ways, those are my most important audiences that I try to engage with um, to get out of our, you know, our echo chambers and our choirs. So I try to have stories that show and don't tell. And so I lean on my photography and imagery for that and just say, you know, this is what I saw. I saw a glowing orange, coppery, yellow river, or I saw a river run dry in a time frame that doesn't make sense. And it's all around us. I mean, uh, I was just looking at some pictures, Josh, of actually skiing um, Pyramid Peak um, down the Landry line, which I'd love to swap stories with you on that. I'm wondering yeah. that line. <laughs> But I was looking at it and it was just 10 years ago and I skied it in June and the snowpack was was record. And every year since that ski, the snowpack has been less and less and less. And we've had a few little bumps, but this year I never even had snow in my backyard and I live outside of us, uh, not far from Aspen and um, they got snow, but I never had it in the, you know, the neighboring town down here. And then I just looked at, I'm um, speaking of Lake Mead, um, Hoover Dam, just give some people some number perspective of where we are. The, the level of the lake right now is 20 feet lower than it was this time last year. And that, that reservoir is huge. That's a reservoir behind Hoover Dam. And that level, which is, I think it's 1,078 feet above the bottom of the reservoir, is just 28 feet above the intakes, the bottom of the intakes to run the hydroelectric. So we're only 28 feet above the, the intakes to run the whole hydroelectric system, which is minuscule. Um, we're getting to a point called, it's called an inactive pool, where we suddenly all the hydroelectric is unusable, and then you get to a point called dead pool. And so these signs are, are right in front of us. And so finding stories in a way to, to remind people, this is here, Become aware of it. It's your system. It's our system. We're all part of the system. How do we move forward? And part of that conversation is getting people, I think, to love these mountains and outdoors, but getting them to realize that they have impacts. We all have impacts. I have impact. You know, I tried to shorten my yard and my lawn, but I think part of the challenge too today, and this is, you know, somewhat potentially controversial to even say, but we go out and we try to conserve and protect one area or we save water here, um, and then we use that water for growth elsewhere in the same system. And it doesn't add up in the big picture. And so I think that needs to be part of the conversation. And um, yeah, we just need more folks. And we need not just us lovers of skiers and, and ski bums and photographers, we need everybody. We need, um, we need to bring more voices back to the table. We need to bring the native tribes back to the table that I've seen around the Grand Canyon and beyond. We need to make people realize that if they're going to visit these places, their voice is powerful. And then the last point I'd say is 
once you become aware of these things, whether through loving them or just learning um, and being concerned, then find a group or organization that you can work with. Find the scientists, the activists. It's not just us filmmakers and storytellers. There's plenty of great organizations out there pushing the needle on the policy front, pushing the needle on the medical front, pushing it everywhere um, on ag, everything we do. And not to beat this home, but our impact is it happens in everything we do, how we live, how we eat, how we go out in the world, how we travel. And it's just good to be mindful of that. And so, I mean, I grew up on a cattle ranch and I believe in the concept of open space and ranching, um, but I'm also very aware that meat is a huge contributor to not just climate change gases, but it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of water to produce a hamburger. So I believe in the concept of reductionism. I'm not like, don't do this, don't become militant about it, but try to reduce all the things we do on a, on a more manageable level. And is that enough? You know, I don't know, but let's try. I'm at the point where we all have to try something and we all have to be aware of it. and, you know, have a laugh or two. Maybe don't pack raft with your skis on a class five to get the laugh, but, you know. <laughs> Teach their own. Teach their own. <laughs> or maybe do. I don't know. Or maybe do. <laughs> Pete, I, I want to reiterate a couple of things that you said really quick, because I think they're really, really important. One, skiing the Landry line. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Uh, the Elk Mounds are beautiful and I'd love to do it with you at some point. But the other thing, and you mentioned it earlier, but it ties back into something else you just said, ego. You mentioned ego earlier. And I'm, it's funny, I'm sitting here in Silverton Avalanche School's office and, and we have a saying in regards to avalanche education and spending time in the mountains, the ego is not your amigo. And I think it really relates to a lot of things, um, particularly what you just said about who you make it a point to talk to. Um, in regards to climate change and advocacy work. Those that are not in your echo chamber and your choir. Those two tie together because a lot of people in advocacy work, I heard, I've heard over the years say like, I just don't have time for somebody who doesn't believe in climate change. I just don't have time to talk to somebody. I tune them out. That's not right. That's not going to help the cause. We need to engage those people. Tuning them out is akin to having an ego with the conversation. You know, it's just wanting pats on the backs and high fives. The ego is not your amigo in this work, this advocacy work. We need to talk to the people who will push back against our ideas. We need to get out of our echo chambers and we need to understand and try to have perspectives of all different minds, uh, different ways of life and see how we can integrate all of those into this fight together and see if we can engage and get those to maybe see it the way we see it, right? That's that's how we build more advocates, I think. So I, I just wanted to re-hit on that point you made because I think it's super important for anyone who wants to get in this conversation to realize it may not always be cheers and, hey, you're doing great, and that's okay. That's really okay if you have to spend extra time talking to somebody who doesn't see it the way you see it. Yes, sir. I'll add one more little thing. Uh, a few years back, I, um, I felt... Again, maybe it's his service called a service. Um, I didn't go into the military, but I but I went into public service and I, I went into the local election for my local town to, you know, I figured if not me, who? So why not stand up for my backyard river? So I ran for a town council position and I actually won. And so many people said the same thing. I don't have time for that. And and I said, well, if you don't, then, then who is? And I realized through that process, it was really hard. It was it probably one of the most challenging things I do because you you know you get into contentious issues in a small town, you meet the person you're maybe across the aisle from, 
um, in the grocery store and you have to have the debate over the, over the celery. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's interesting, but I realized, I learned that democracy is all about who shows up and the same goes in conservation and in the world of conservation, you only need to lose once in my opinion. Um, it's been proven, you know, plenty of times. And so it's all about, we just need to show up and be brave. And do we have all the answers? No, but the fact you show up and you care, I think says a lot. And it's, um, and that's just great to see, you know, guys like yourself, you know, picking up the baton and taking it further downstream, so to speak, with yeah. skis on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> You're so interested in that. <laughs> I just can't, I just know how easy it'd be to pop a pack raft. <laughs> we have the ice axes and crampons in bags, so. Ooh, that really seems safer. <laughs> 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 hey, hey, Pete and, and Josh, one thing you guys have riffed a lot on is, is um, you know, this, this concept of service. And I think we're always so curious about, and everybody's got a different story here, but it's really the, the main reason why CJ and I came together in this project. We, we have our individual stories of how we came into a life of service as well. But within this particular audience, I find that there's something, <laughs> and to go back to this, the folly of adventure. I mean, there's something about the type of person who embraces the uncertain and actually deals with suffering that I think potentiates us to lean into this uncomfortable space of talking to somebody else who has a different political affiliation than us because we want to preserve a space. Um, I think, uh, the credit belongs someone to, to to the man in the arena, right? To go to a, an, an old quote, or as I think Ab, Ed Abbey says, you don't really learn something until you leave a little blood on the trail, right? But I think he also, as a classic Ed Abbey style, said something like, maybe, uh, maybe you learn something. Um, I think he, I think so, he ended with maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not, which <laughs> is beautiful, Abbey, because it's so true. And so let's actually, let's maybe respond to that. So what do you think, I mean, I know you have your own personal story, but so much of the challenge I think here is to not just get people to like what we're doing and to agree with what we're doing, but to take that next uncomfortable step to, to do something about it. And sometimes that's financial sacrifice. Sometimes that's being more conscientious about some of these lifestyle changes, which Pete, you, I mean, it was a great review of some things that you, of, of your own personal calculus of what you've changed, but where do we go from, you know, maybe, maybe not to, yeah, let's do it. And do you think that actually leaning into these challenges, whether it be an, an, an adventure or in your case, Josh, I mean, in the military service and the sacrifice there is like, you're naturally primed to want to do something. And I think there is something there. I think there is something for, for an audience of people that push their limits and also have the flexibility and lifestyle to be able to enjoy these environments for recreation, that there is a space that they actually have means and resources to do something about it. And actually, I think they're just primed to do something about it. And they just need to hear another story, perhaps, to get them over that hump. There's an inertia gap to actually give the money to show up to that meeting, to talk to somebody who has a different opinion than you. I guess maybe, Josh, in your case, to keep this question a little more specific, what gave you the courage, maybe you have a poignant story, to reach out and talk to someone on the other side of the aisle, you know, so to speak? And then when you talk to other people that admire you and what you've done, how do you tell them that what they do is, is just as important? It may be a drop in the bucket, but enough drops turns into an ocean, right? Exactly. The ripples, right? Yeah. The ripples are so important. And it's, you know, as you're asking that question, I was just trying to think through so many little anecdotes and like, 
I've been lucky to have a number of anecdotes at this point, a number of a number of things happen that keep me going. And it's funny, you know, we've been talking about service a little bit. And CJ, if you don't mind, I'd like to like really quick tell the story about how you and I met. Would that be all right? Uh, of course. <laughs> so so it's it's it just goes to show how small the world is um, and how tied together we all are. So CJ and I were in Telluride and we we're at a, on a rooftop having some beers. Never met before, two random guys having a beer. And we started talking and I forget how we got to it, but we started talking about funerals, military funerals and funerals at Arlington specifically. And I had mentioned a funeral Arlington that I was at um, for a guy named Nate Hardy. And CJ told me that that was one of my good friends. And right then and there, that's how we met. And like that tie, that little tiny tie has helped me in my advocacy work and has uh, helped us have this conversation right here, right now. So those little moments in life, I think, are few and far between, but you need to latch onto them and you need to continue to show up, always consistently be there for something you care about. And then one other anecdote that I was really lucky to have that has, um, the other advocacy work I mostly do is for veterans. So I was at OR, Outdoor Retailer, and this guy kept kind of eyeing me up and and I was I was just wondering who he was. I didn't know who he was. And eventually he walked up to me and he introduced himself and he was a Green Beret, former Green Beret. Um, he started talking about himself and he had been shot like seven times throughout his combat deployments. And I was just like truly humbled by his military experience. And he said to me, because of you and what you've done in skiing, I now want to be the first Purple Heart recipient to ski off an 8,000 meter peak. And that moment right there, that little tiny moment at a show where I was surviving off of McDonald's and I was sleeping in my car outside the, you know, outside the building trying to show up and get sponsors and, and uh, build projects, barely squeaking by. But him walking up to me and saying that is what keeps me going, those little tiny moments. And I truly believe in hanging on to those. Sure, there's a lot of self-sacrifice involved, but I always seek to do good. I always seek to inspire those around me and improve the world that I'm in. In the military, there's a saying, always leave a place better than you found it. And I've really latched on to that and, and tried to continue to perpetuate that idea in my life. And I think that has continued to propel me down this road of advocacy and, and trying to do good. Josh, I got a question for you. That's, a, that's an awesome story you guys met. Um, and I agree, these little nuggets can carry us forward. My question for you is, and I grapple with this myself, is particularly in story, it, it, it sure helps to, in a story to have something that's never been done and to have, you know, the first to do this or the, you know, to, to beat the record. But with that comes a level of, particularly in the outdoors, it, um, and I see this all over the place, particularly with, you know, technology and Strava and all these things, we can measure our fitness level that we're, we're using the outdoors now as our gym. And we have this, you know, tendency to love places to death, to go follow what the other person did, to copycat, and then to conquer nature. You know, of course, with a military background, that word probably has some different meanings <laughs> for you. Um, but I'm wondering how you deal with that, because for me, I find it challenging. As I get older, I'm more inclined to turn away from the summit and enjoy what's right there. Um, and I just did a big project on on silence and I'm kind of retuning my world around this different layers of looking at our wild spaces and how to measure them and not just the, the summit peak and the beautiful vista, but maybe that 
that softer sound or the sound of wildlife that we often don't notice. So I'm curious if, if that comes into your matrix, because obviously you had a big accomplishment in the 14er project, but that comes with the title and and then this guy wants to become the first. And right. you know, my Grand Canyon project had a level of that too. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think um, more people need to realize aesthetics and creativity in their adventures. You defined adventure a little bit ago, and I want to present another definition is um, it's only an adventure when you're surrounded by uncertainty. And so I think there's so many ways in the mountains that we can be surrounded by uncertainty. As my coworker, Michael Ackerman, likes to say that the summit is just the most logical place to turn around. And then another prominent saying that from Steve Jobs to Jeremy Jones, uh, the journey is the reward. And I think the more people that realize those couple little nuggets, the more people we're going to have going to the next trailhead, going to the peaks in Colorado that are just under 14,000 feet, um, looking into their own backyard for that adventure that, and, and understanding creativity and aesthetics and engaging in that more natural world where you can find silence, like you said, maybe trails that don't have a ton of people on them because they're there, right? I, I kind of laugh so many times when people from outside of Colorado pick on Colorado and just say like, oh, I-70 corridor, it's just a mob of people everywhere. I'll tell you what, there are mountain ranges in this state where you can go to any of the trails and not see anybody. It's just the roadside attractions that are kind of loved to death, right? If people are more inclined to just go one ridge further or go to a trailhead that maybe isn't on Strava or a trailhead that maybe isn't on Mountain Project or something like that, they'll find kind of solace in, wow, this place is still completely wild and it's just out my back door. So I think helping people realize, and like you said, there are titles and and all these things, but helping people realize that it doesn't always need to be a title. It doesn't always need to be a summit. Instead, it can be some outside of the box, creative, weird, obscure um, adventure in your own backyard. In fact, I'm working on a project called Journey Lines, which is a kind of adventure book that's coming out in the fall that is based around these exact type of adventures. And it's just funny you, you mentioned it. Um, for instance, one of the chapters is 5,000 foot ski descents and finding those. And I'll tell you what, I've done a lot of searching in Colorado and they're very hard to find. <laughs> They're there, we have the prominence, but getting the snow conditions from top to bottom, it's a decade wait for some of them, or even a two decade wait. And helping people see those out of the box adventures and different ways of looking at the outdoors, I think is super important to help spread our crowds out. I don't know if, if you hunt at all, Pete, but I do hunt as well. And one thing I noticed about the herds in Colorado last fall was they were spooked. They were acting very, very strange due to the massive crowds we had at certain places. And you had to think creatively about where you might find animals. And I think if we don't compel everyone to think creatively when they go outside, that problem might persist. So I think that's a, a great question, very nuanced, but something we all need to continue to work on and, and find, find a way to articulate those thoughts and points. I, I'll just add one quick thing. I, I, I've been working on this project on silence um, which is also a book coming out in the fall and it's called Seeing Silence. And it's, it's the idea that you can go into these wild places. And it's what I'd like to try to get people to do is get, a, you know, away from, you know, conquering the peak, conquering the trail, conquering the time, 
to having a more returning to more of a reverence to the place and not just exploring the, the valleys and the peaks and the crevasses of the physical landscape, but use a little bit of that to explore the interior crevasses of our own mind and go to the places we we often don't. Um, that may sound a little woo-woo, but I think we all need a little mental health after this year for a number of reasons. And then if we can go into the wild spaces and a little more peacefully and a little more respectfully with a little more reverence, it might might give the animals a little reprieve. It might give the, the system as a whole a little more reprieve. I'd like to think so at least. Yeah, I think I think that's beautifully stated. And at the end of the day, when people go for these peaks, uh, when they're trying to conquer the mountains, what are they actually trying to do? They're trying to explore themselves, right? They're trying to find their own limits. They're trying to find out who they are, how they interact with these wild places, how they interact with challenge. You can do that off the summit, right? You can explore your mind. You can explore yourself in other ways because what, what else is everybody trying to do beyond exploring themselves? They're trying to reconnect, right? They're trying to connect with the outdoors because maybe they feel disconnected. So if we bring it back to those two points, the summit's not necessary. The peak's not necessary. Like you said, the crevasses of your mind are what you want to try to look at and introspection and reconnecting with nature, um, with the silence, with the, the, the noises of the mountains, the noises of the animals, the water flowing back to water. Um, water's calming, right? And if we go to places that are, you know, maybe don't have big crowds, I think those two goals of exploring yourself and reconnecting with nature may be better achieved. I think it's uh, I think it's going to be challenging, though. I mean, I think not to be the you know the challenger here, but even podcasts like this is a great a job as you guys do, and myself included with social media. We're all part of that game of promoting this too. So it's a fine line to walk. We're promoting these places that we love and it attracts people. And so I'm, I'm particularly conscious, at least with Instagram, I never put locations anymore. Even if people are going with the right intent, it's we've gotten to this place where it's, it's getting tricky. And I, I don't know how to actually address it that well. I wish we could bring everybody and everybody deserves it. And I think we all need it. And I don't think the wilderness should be exclusive on any front, but there's a, there's a caring capacity that every natural system can have. Mm. That's with mm. water, wildlife, and humanity. And finding that's the trick and respecting yeah. it. Yeah. It is really, really hard to do. And I think a, a, a way to make steps towards that is help people understand that you don't need to, like, like we were talking about bringing in from the global scale, we can all also say like the backyard scale, like you don't have to be on the Grand Teton for adventure. In fact, where I grew up in PA is surrounded by beautiful hills and mountains. You know, that's also a nice backyard. That's also a beautiful place to spend time outside. People that live in big cities, there's parks there, you know, like it doesn't have to be these grand landscapes, even though they're amazing to go to at some times, but like you can connect with the outdoors anywhere. And I think maybe helping people understand that could be steps to alleviating this, uh, this loving a place to death thing that, that, as you and I know is happening a lot in the places that we, that we live. So yeah, I think it's, it's good to find ways, ways to alleviate that. Follow up on Pete's point. Cause Pete, I, I struggle with this as well. Um, big time. And I, I think it's really how we, how we view the landscape and it's, it's utility to us. I hate to use that term, but that's actually how it seems like it's been reduced to like, 
Um, it's an amusement and it's a commodity to talk about that we went and we did this thing. And um, I totally appreciate the challenge, but it's the same way I'm leaning into putting the time in to have these conversations because I think there is an opportunity here to lean into a different purpose with these trips. And that is not spraying about my accomplishments and what I've done, but instead of seeing this as an opportunity, not for my amusement and to prove the thing I'd done, but like an opportunity for engagement. Right. And, uh, and sometimes that happens in, in most profoundly in the silent spaces, because there's very few silent spaces there. There's very few dark sky reserves left. And when we actually go and experience these places, then we are subsequently moved to preserve them and do something about it. And that's the shift in purpose. Like I think right now, especially coming out of COVID, like we're kind of languishing for something to do and a purpose. And I feel like even just last summer, we had a flood of people into the backcountry environment and they just wanted to do these, these things that were okay to do during COVID, but they were all proving they could do these different activities and get to different peaks. But I mean, I think there's a richer purpose in that we kind of have having a reawakening that we want to be able to do something meaningful. And the purpose may not be looking at these accomplishments in the outdoors as a commodity, but an opportunity to connect and then figure out actually how to preserve these spaces. And I think the value that you've brought Pete so far. And now that Josh is bringing in is actually the power of your personal stories and narratives to share that like these places are at risk. Like we can't just keep showing beautiful pictures of horseshoe bend and say it's like pristine and it hasn't been affected. There's something happening behind that lens, which is terribly troubling with how many cars go to that spot every single day and how loud it is. Right. The picture doesn't capture the noise pollution of that space. And, and, and there is something that's worth preserving there. And I think what I would, what I'd love to start getting some advice from you guys for someone who, who, who may be listening to this, and I believe this is true, but do you think there is true power in the personal narrative, regardless who you are, right? Like just talking to a friend about how special this experience was in this place to start moving people into caring. And that might be donating money, or it may just be changing some of their own practices um, and making some sacrifices of you know how they consume and, and their own lives. But uh, Pete, I, I know you've been through this so many times, and I know you struggle with this and it's frustrating. And I, I struggle with a lot of things in a different roles, but I'm, I'm curious, are you, are you optimistic going forward? Are you pessimistic going forward? Do you think story is, is is the way that people need to share with one another to, to move forward positively here. Well, I appreciate you, you, you bring it up and I appreciate, you know, I think we all struggle with it and you're, you're obviously, you guys are aware of this. Um, I'm, I'd say I'm a 51% optimist on these fronts. And I, I, I've said that for quite a while. I, I believe in human spirit. I believe in humanity. I believe in innovation and our ingenuity to do these things. And I believe in conversations like this that hopefully reach an audience that, Maybe there's some in this group that that haven't thought of these things in this way, and maybe it'll make them think about the next time they go out, if they go outside, and maybe it's their backyard park, or maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe they don't travel as far. Um, but I wanted to share a quick um, story of something that had a big, significant impact on me, which led me in somewhat to this project on silence, is that when I did this walk um, with Kevin Fedarko through the length of the Grand Canyon, it took us um, over a year. We walked 750 miles to document, you know, our most iconic national park and the threats happening to it and loving to death is one of them. And one of the threats um, 
was a proposal for a tram to be built on the Navajo Nation land to the Grand Canyon National Park boundary at a place called the Confluence. And it would have brought 10,000 people a day down to that spot. And the argument was that everyone deserves to go down there. And um, most people, you know, can't ever make that hike. And uh, even though the National Park Service, the actual park to the to the southwest of that spot does have handicapped trails and a variety of options that I think are remarkable. Um, this was the argument, and it was going to bring jobs, which everyone you know leans on that. And there was a band of Navajo women, um, and this is not far from Horseshoe Point, you know, where they've really developed that rapidly. But there was a band of basically 12 Navajo women, only three of them spoke English, and they fought back and they said, no, we don't want to do this. We believe in growth and we believe in tourism, but not here. This place is sacred. This is our church. And interestingly, none of those women, to my knowledge, had ever been or hiked down in that spot at all. And they didn't need to. It was sufficient as it was to just oversee it. And so these Basically, these 12 Navajo, mostly grandmothers, they fought back a billion-dollar development project, and they won. Um, it was a, a vote in the Navajo Nation, something I think, um, I can't remember precisely now, but 15 to 2, 16 to 2 in the vote, which was unexpected. And it reminded me of the power of people that stand up, they show up, they care, but also that people like that can protect something without having to actually be in it, and the power of just having that presence and that awareness. And um, it, it really moved me. It made me think about going forward and, and how we need voices like that. We need Navajo voices. We need all these voices, native voices, kids from inner cities to understand this, but you don't have to stand in the exact spot that that photographer, or that filmmaker, or that person did. You don't have to stand on the summit and, and you can still find value in place or just even knowing it's there. So I don't really know where I'm headed with this, to be honest, but I think the point is that there are little moments you you see that we can learn from. And um, I hope that, you know, pushes the needle a little bit towards that concept of revering our nature instead of trying Peter, to what, you know, the story of, of those women, uh, you know, making a difference by showing up and you both have noted that, that, you know, sometimes it, it feels it's paralyzing. These problems are big and it's paralyzing for our, for our audience, for, for, for you guys out there, you know, creating content, uh, but you show up and, and, you know, sometimes you, it, it has an effect. And you know, so you got to keep showing up. I think that's what I take from, from that yeah. story is that it's uh you don't have to worry so much all the time about if I'm going to show up, is there going to be in a direct outcome from this? Um, I think that that idea of showing up is, is really strong. And even, even as I say that, you know, a lot of what Terry and I talk about on this podcast is about effective altruism, right. On how to, how to be the most effective. And you mentioned this earlier, Pete, and maybe this is a good way to, to wrap is, you know, what are the organizations in, in both of your opinions, the ones that are doing the work right now that our listeners and, and people out there can get involved with in one way or another, whether that's donating or following or in one way or another supporting, you know, who's out there doing the work right now that we could tell, tell the folks at home, you know, where to send a dollar or, or, or more uh, or pay attention to. 
Well, I work um, with a, quite a few groups and I have, but uh, the Grand Canyon Trust is a, a board I actually sit on. And what I really like about them is they stand up for the um, Colorado Plateau and that landscape, but they also have not only native voices on the board, but on the staff. And that's remarkable. I just go in there and I, I mean, I usually am just too humbled and too afraid to even speak up most of the time because there's so much wisdom in the room. American Rivers is another organization that I've worked with around on water. Um, and then there's, you know, a lot of the big groups of Nature Conservancy and so forth. But I believe in small nonprofits too in your local community, if you, if you know them. I think it's good to get engaged and it's also good to be diligent about it. Don't just assume that a nonprofit is doing the best work. There are some out there that are, you know, I've encountered that are questionable, but the ones I engage with, I'm really impressed with. And I just, that last line showing up, you don't need much to show up. Those Navajo women had very little and they showed up. And I think back to Josh's point, um, what I think made them very successful is they were egoless in the process. I mean, we all have ego to a degree, but they, the ego is not the amigo. I just love that line. So Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. Josh, any, any uh, orgs that you're involved with or, or places that can tell the, the peoples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've, for a long time, I've been super lucky enough to work with Protect Our Winners. You know, they're the organization that brought me into the fold with advocacy work and um, have really helped me gain a strong foothold and, and do the stuff I do. And most recently, I've started to work with Western Resource Advocates, who is a, another really strong group who, man, I'll tell you what, they do a lot of stuff and their hands are everywhere in the West. And one thing that they're, they're doing that I, I really am kind of strongly going to speak for is their, um, their Outstanding Waters program, trying to get um, rivers across the West and streams and waterways to have an Outstanding Waters designation, um, which provides those waters, watershed protection. And I think that's just a great program and, and people should look into it. And like Pete said, find organizations that you really think are actually being effective. And if you do your own research, you're empowering yourself to be a better advocate, right? So take that advice that Pete gave, do some research, but those are the organizations that I work closely with. That's great. Thank you. Western Resource Advocates, Grand Canyon Trust, American Rivers, of course, our friends that protect our winters. Uh, those are all great. And it's always, it's helpful to hear from people we trust in terms of that research, that's always a good place to start. So deeply appreciate and uh, inspired by both of you. So thank you for being here. And all this information will be in the show notes. So you can click on uh, click on these links uh, when we post this up. And um, yeah, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks guys. Honored to be on it. Oh, awesome. That was really great conversation. Um, CJ, what, what were some of your takeaways from that? I mean, so many listening to Pete and Josh, uh, it's so cool to see the, you know, hear the two of them come together and talk through their experiences. I mean, I, I think both of them really 
we're very transparent about the the struggle about you know the collision if you will about access and conservation which we've talked about before there's not a solution we're certainly not presenting that solution but i think it's a great conversation around that balance and and they both had good points on that uh, i also thought that their point of showing up that these little connections even the story of how josh and i first met these little tiny connections uh, can lead to big things. They can actually make a difference. And, you know, the, sometimes that, that saying that perfection is the enemy of good or the enemy of progress, I think that's true in that sometimes it's enough to just show up and get things moving. And Josh and, and Pete certainly have done that over and over in many ways in their individual career. So uh, I love the story, uh, uh, Josh's story of uh, going face to face with the mountain goat and having his moment of realizing he had to protect uh, these spaces. And, and I think also this idea of finding um, adventure locally. And I've, I've personally been experiencing that more. I think many of us have. Um, and I think that's a really, it's a, it's a strong point of, you know, you don't always have to get on an airplane to, to have an adventure that find the, the causes and the things that need to be protected in your backyard. Um, so those are the, my takeaways. Yeah. I mean, there are many more, but how about you, Terry? Yeah, well, uh, amazing. I mean, obviously, Josh is so accomplished in his background with the military as a SEAL, and then obviously his accomplishment on the 14ers. But what's so poignant about him is is his catchphrase of, of how the ego is not his amigo. And uh, I, it was really interesting to hear um, from from Pete going to take that to how we incorporate these experiences we have in the outdoor landscape and actually how we see our landscape. And I really hope that people take uh, his words to heart, or at least think about when we spend our time outdoors, uh, are we engaging with it purely for our amusement? Um, or might we take an extra step to think how we can take these experiences and the broad open spaces and the wonderful silent spaces under the broad starry skies as an opportunity for engagement. Um, mm -hmm. and so in that, uh, we, they both listed some wonderful organizations that uh, Pete referenced that might merit some of our listeners going to the Grand Canyon Trust, American Rivers, Western Resource Advocates, of course, Protect Our Winners, helping Josh and his efforts. And uh, from the Adventure Activist, of course, we'd like to thank Pete and Josh for doing work in service of SDG Goal 6, which is clean water specifically support and strengthening participation in communities and improving uh, water sanitation, protecting and restoring water-related ecosystems and uh, water resource management. So thanks so much for leaning into that cause, guys. Yeah, and, and they both have a they both have a lot of projects. Um, it's worth we, all this will be on the show notes, but it's worth noting that you know they're both authors that you can find their books. They're both filmmakers. You can find their films. They both uh, are involved in nonprofits that that we've just gone through. And you know, with Memorial Day coming up, it is worth noting. Um, you know, Mission Memorial Day is very very near and dear to Josh's heart. I would suggest everybody take a look at that. And Pete's got an amazing book coming out um, that's about silence coming out in September. We talked a little bit about that concept, I think, of connecting with yourself in the outdoors. And I think Pete's book is, and then of course, uh, Josh's film um, about the Project Animus is coming out in July. So that's a lot. It will all be in the show notes, but uh, just really grateful for these two to join us. And and to you, Terry, for keeping us uh, you know, on point. And there was actually one other thing that, you know, there, I was I going to ask you as a physician, 
Pete had a moment when he was talking about how he didn't know where the Colorado River went. You know that that and and it it struck me as this this lifeline, right? This artery, if you will, that runs the entire length of the West, essentially. And that there was some anatomy almost in that description mm-hmm. of the West where they could be metaphorically sort of put on top of the arteries in us that run, you know, and keep us alive, that these rivers in the West are, are the massive arteries that are in, essential to the health of the organism itself. And we don't even know where they go where we don't even know. And, and so imagine as a physician, you're like, well, there's an artery, but I don't really know where it ends or it just comes out of the heart. And that's where I play with it. But, you know, otherwise I don't know how it, it affects anything. Right. And it's just, it's sort of disconnected. So I just had that thought. I was wondering what you thought about that as a, as someone who actually knows where these arteries go within the body. <laughs> I appreciate that you think yeah, I know where yeah. the arteries go in the body. Yeah. So thanks for the vote of confidence. That's awesome. No, I, hope I you think, do. no, but I, I think it, implicit in that story is part of a longer conversation. I think a lot of us are coming to grips with and that we have been taking for granted this larger lifeblood, which which is the planet we live on, right? I mean, we are part of a super organism of many other organisms, which is this ecosystem. And uh, as we continue to make impacts on this planet, uh, it very much affects our own lives and livelihood. And we need to understand the organism where the disease is and do what we can to fix that disease. I mean, this is not just stewardship to protect an aesthetic. Uh, This is stewardship to protect life and long-term generations to come. And uh, I think, unfortunately, with the systemic risks that we're seeing with climate change and environmental degradation, we are now in this era really coming to grips that there's some urgency with these problems going forward. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, it's really inspiring to hear these, these, these small stories of people looking for solutions, because as you said in the interview, it's so easy to be paralyzed that the problem is so big, but little voices and little stories and showing up really do make a difference. And so uh, calling out to our listeners, I mean, we're halfway through our season here. Um, We would love to know if we're making an impact. We would love to hear from you. um, If you are finding inspiration, if you've actually been motivated to do something, there's little ways you can just give us a like, you can give us a good rating on iTunes. If you appreciate this, you can send us a message. Better yet, we would love to hear little snippets of stories you're up to. You can tag uh, at Rome or at the Adventure Activist on your social media with a little snippet of some work that you're up to in service of the SDG goals because of your life as an adventurer. And, um, you know, this is an experiment, but we think it's a meaningful one. And CJ and I want to continue to do this. So if anybody finds inspiration in this and value in it and wants to support this going forward, uh, the Adventure Activist is a nonprofit 501c3 platform, and I uh, certainly can go to our site at theadventureactivist.org and, and donate so that we can continue some of this programming uh, going forward, because for me, it's, it's been invaluable and super inspiring. Thanks, Terry. Yeah, we, re- we really appreciate you being with us on this and Adventure Activist, and you can go to roamemedia.com forward slash give. And you can see how you can connect uh, with all of these organizations and in particular adventure activists. And then of course, adventureactivist.org. You can just go straight there also. So thanks a lot for joining us uh, once again. And uh, we want to make a, a quick call out to all the people that helped put this together for us. We've got uh, Healy Cruz, our producer who 
glues everything together and makes us sound somewhat um, like we know what we're doing. Thank you, Healy. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, Dr. Terry O'Connor, my co-host, Corey Richards, who's also a host that joins us from time to time, the entire crew at Rome Media. And then, uh, of course, Evan Phillips and his uh, audio engineering that helps us sound better uh, than, than we might actually sound in real life. This episode of Rum From Home is brought to you by Adventure Activists. Adventure Activists is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the Sustainable Development Goals. They call on experts to help with storytelling around health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast Rum From Home. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy is Rome's educational platform where you can connect with the greatest icons, adventurers, photographers, and filmmakers of our day. And they will teach you subjects, uh, everything from skiing and snowboarding to surfing, photography, adventure storytelling, how to achieve your dreams, fitness. It's all on there, sort of the masterclass of the outdoors, if you will. So check that out if you enjoy this podcast. That's how we stay in business is our membership with the Rome Academy. You can find us at romemedia.com, real simple. Thanks for listening.